0: I discovered a writer by the name of Donald Miller. Different kind of cat, sees the world differently, sees faith differently, grew up in Portland. Uh, so uh, And faith is, you know, it's a very much under church part of our country. And he wrote a book that really struck me, especially in my 20s. It kind of hit at the right time. And uh, the title alone is identifiable to me. It's called Searching for God Knows What. (laughs) Because I think sometimes in religion and faith, we're like, what are we... What are we doing? We're just trying to make it day-to-day, right? Well, in the book, in chapter 3, this is so beautiful and scary at the same time. Uh, Chapter 3, he titled The Lifeboat Theory, How to Kill Your Neighbor. And I was like, "Oh, this is interesting, not because I want to kill my neighbor, right? But because I just, wow, that's a great shock jock statement. What is this chapter about?" Well, in the chapter he talks about a time where he observed a classroom and a teacher sort of posed this story or this problem to uh, her students. And so, the lifeboat theory, as as it's called, goes like this. If there were a lifeboat adrift at sea, and in the lifeboat were a male lawyer, a female doctor, a crippled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man, and one person had to be thrown out to save the others, which person would you choose? What, what, what a dilemma. So I thought I'd be a little sadistic like the teacher and ask you, if you were in a lifeboat, who would you overthrow? Now, if you're new, I don't normally do this, okay? I, I like to help our first time visitors remain anonymous, but not today, okay? Or you can be an adult and not participate. It's totally up to you. How many of you, if you were in a lifeboat, would throw over the lawyer? Okay? Yeah, we, we have a few lawyers in here, so take it for what you want. Uh, how many of you would overthrow the female doctor? Wise. I'm not even going to touch the crippled child, because I'm pretty sure you're going to hell if you throw over a crippled child, okay? <laughs> how many of you would throw over the stay-at-home mom? There were a few stay-at-home moms last service <laughs> that said I would throw over my friend. Uh, and, and lastly, how many of you would throw over the garbage guy, the garbage man? Yeah, because if you threw him over, like, your house would smell, right? Some of you are not even participating, which, hey, that's your right. We'd probably throw you over too. But the, the, um, the, the, tension of the chapter is this. Nobody in the chapter actually said, wait a minute. Doesn't everybody have equal value and worth? Why are we, why, why are we doing evolution and survival of the fittest here and throwing over somebody? which led Donald to write this in the chapter. The reason I wanted to feel this is because I wondered if these emotions, the emotions you would feel in a lifeboat were anything like the feelings we all feel when we're living out our lives, like just hanging out at the house or even going to the grocery store. I think he's on to something, because I think we live the lifeboat theory, or as I said before, as Darwin would say, survival of the fittest. We're constantly sizing people up. Can I take this person? Can I outwork this person so that I get the promotion? Can I... You know, can I be the best mom and dad better than all my other friends, right? I'm going to be the vegan, gluten-free, whatever else mom that feeds my kids the healthiest. F- like we're constantly doing this, are we not? I came across this beautiful, hilarious story about a new guy who moved into the south side of Boston a few years ago and found out that the life, uh, the life theory boat, lifeboat, I forgot my words, I need more coffee, actually exists. Because he moved in and over the winter, he found out that uh, Southies on the south side of Boston go to great lengths to carve out their parking spot in front of their houses or their apartments. And he found out the hard way that if uh, a Southie removes the snow and has a chair to save its spot, you don't touch it. Watch this video. Good morning. Well, this is what you might call your basic space saver, a metal chair. And why would you want a space saver? Because it can take hours to dig out a car like this one. And after you're done, you want to protect the space that you've created. But now the city says enough is enough. Calling dibs on these coveted parking spots is a time-honored tradition in Boston with its own set of unspoken rules. You don't touch somebody's spot. You do not. You don't. Chris Heller found out the hard way when he moved to South Boston two years ago. I came out one morning and found that all three of my tires were slashed. And the people were direct about it. They're like, you took, the guy, you took this woman's spot. They slashed your tires and no apology. As far as they were concerned, I was in the wrong. So, and it was just a welcome to the neighborhood. I've seen a wheelchair. I've seen barbecue pits. After a relentless barrage of storms and more than a hundred inches of snow, household items like high chairs, crates, and laundry baskets have practically become permanent fixtures on cramped city streets. Some of the items even come with a note. You know, we don't go to the suburbs and take people's driveways away. You know, so I think that you know that's our spot. Good. (laughs) <laughs> if you're from the south side, we'll throw you over and go home and slash your tires. I love it. I love it. The lifeboat theory plays out, all, and he took a woman's spot. Like, that's pretty low, right? Like, he actually goes on in the interview, it says uh, they're thinking about changing the role, and he's like, oh, my friends are cops out here. They're still going to do it, which I, I think is kind of kind of intriguing and, and kind of interesting. But we, we play the lifeboat theory in church, don't we? Well, the answer is yes, Okay. Um, because here's the deal. I've, I've, I've been a pastor here for about a year. Next weekend will be uh, my, my year anniversary here. And I've had a lot of conversations because you guys are very gracious. You won't stop inviting your friends, which is awesome. And so what happens is on the back end, kind of lets you into my world, is as people are getting comfortable with me and my style and with the church, they'll shoot me an email or a text and say, hey, let's Let's get coffee. I've got some questions. And so throughout my year here in New England, uh, I, I want to I share some thoughts uh, that I've heard people when uh, I grab coffee with them that are new to the church. It goes something like this. I love or I'm interested in Jesus, but the churches I've been to uh, have been very judgmental. Everything is black and white. The churches I've attended uh, haven't been meaningful to me, and I'm looking for something that makes sense, something that I can actually get my head around. I, I wonder if I can come to your church, and even though my life isn't where I want it to be, and even uh, I even know that how I'm living isn't what Jesus would want for me. I, I have a lot of questions and doubts, and I wonder if I come to your church, can I belong before I believe? I wonder if your church will be accepting of my lifestyle. See, I think some of the reasons why <clears throat> first-time guests come and leave or maybe go, come and stay is that they wonder if I, if I come to this church, if I get on this church's lifeboat, are they going to toss me out? Or does everybody have equal worth and value? Like, is there a seat for me in my brokenness, in my sin, in my doubt, in my atheism, other, whatever it is, is there a seat for me here? Or will they say that publicly because all Christians have to act nice on the outside? But will I eventually be treated differently when I open up in a life group for the first time, or I share something about my life in the lobby, or I'm getting to know people at RCC, and we go out to lunch, and I share something, and then you could just see the look, go, wait a minute, this person is different. Sometimes churches don't grow because they have a lifeboat mentality. And whether they know it or not, they're killing (laughs) not their neighbors, but the first-time visitors, because they say that God loves them and is filled with grace, but yet they can't have a place here to kind of explore that, right? And so we've been asking this question, what is God's dream for your friends? Do your friends know, and we only have two weeks left of this series, and we're done with Mark. We've made it through an entire gospel together, which is pretty great. Do your friends know that they're actually invited to the kingdom, do, do your friends know that that wherever they're at, their lifestyle, their doubts, their questions—that they're allowed to come here? And as they open up, and and Jesus gets a hold of them, and they're being honest with Jesus, it's not their, it's not Jesus's lifestyle. Like it's not it's not that Jesus is after their lifestyle, but he wants us to follow his lifestyle. Like like I I don't I don't know if I want to be justified by my own lifestyle. <laughs> because I don't know if I would make it to heaven, to be honest with you. But I want to live Jesus's life. I wanna, I'm interested in how he spends his days and why he's so quick to forgive enemies, right? Like, like, I'm interested in that. And I don't know that our friends who aren't here yet because they're sleeping in, enjoying the weekend or, or whatever, no, I don't mean that as a guilt trip, but I wonder if our friends even know that, that there's a seat waiting for them, or is it a thing where like, we're just so grateful that we found grace that you know, to bring Jesus up at work or after hours or on the ball field or with our, with our friends' kids while they're playing their sports, maybe that's a little, a little too much for us. But I wonder if we ask the question, what is God's dream for our friends, if our friends would actually know what that dream is? And so last weekend, we started this, the last half of Mark, last quarter of Mark's section, and Aaron Rathbone from Movement talked about the way of hospitality, that hospitality is a way to let our friends know, hey, there's a seat for you here to explore Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about the way of serving another another way that we can let our friends know that there's a seat for you here. Now, now we're not talking about shoveling snow or raking leaves or those are acts of service, but what we're here to talk about is how do we serve our friends? In our conversations and through our relationships. So, if you have your Bibles or Bible app or Google on your phone, I think that covers everybody. You can turn to Mark chapter nine, uh, verses thirty and following. It'll also be on the screen. And we're going to talk about this idea, the way of serving, because it it seemed to be pretty important to Jesus, because Jesus constantly got misunderstood that his kingdom was about a, ph- a physical, political entity that would overthrow the Roman government, and so a lot of people wanted to be in his kingdom for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is going to tell us, no, 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 no. Our, our kingdom, this movement is different than maybe what you're used to. In Mark 9, 30 through 32, uh, Mark writes these words as we talk about, the way of serving will serve the soul. And that'll make sense in a minute. They, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, Right? Jesus is not a big social media guy. Don't tell people where we're at because he was teaching his disciples. So what he had for them was just for them. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him after three days. He will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is a photo of Jesus's travels. Jesus is on the north end up here. He's going to travel through Capernaum, Galilee, and he's going to make his way south uh, to Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, uh, you haven't read it in a while or ever, uh, the gospel writers, especially for Mark, are going to pr- portray Jesus as the suffering Messiah. That, that G, you know, you ever, you ever had a hard day, a hard week, a hard month? Well, Mark is describing Jesus as having a hard life that he's the Messiah that will come to suffer for us. And you don't get any sense with all these health and wealth preachers that are really good looking and they put a lot of gel in their hair that if you give so much online, God will bless your life. Like maybe, but that's not what Jesus said. And that's not how he lived according to what Mark is gonna tell us. And so this is the second time in Mark chapter nine that Jesus is predicting his, his death. Now, if you like the movie before the book, you're going to love Mark because Mark is, he'll tell a story and he'll use the adverb immediately. Okay, got to go, moving on, tell them, moving on. Moving. But what's interesting about Mark is that he spends the more time on the crucifixion and the resurrection than any other gospel writers. Why? Because he wants us to know that Jesus came to suffer for our sins. That while we pimp Jesus out for our own political gain and movement and social movement, it's easy to do that, sure. Jesus' first movement to come to heaven was not to get us to vote the way we want him to vote or think the way we want him to think. His primarily, primary role, according to the gospel of Mark, is that he would come and suffer and die on a cross, Isaiah 53, there there are these, um, it's what's called messianic prophecies, meaning in the Old Testament, the writers through the through the Holy Spirit, hang with me, uh, are describing what the Son of uh, the Messiah is going to look like, how he's going to live when he comes. So you're talking years and years removed. And this verse I'm about to read to you in Isaiah 53 is descriptive of the Messiah, which we happen to believe here to be Jesus. And so this is Isaiah 53 describing that when the Son of Man, the Messiah comes, he will suffer Isaiah 53, one through three, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, pronoun referring to Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, right? Like how many, how many paintings have you seen where Jesus is like, you know, his hair's Miss America pageant, the hair, you know, the makeup looks good, but according to Isaiah, Jesus was not very attractive, not very marketable. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire about him. Like he was just a common, every ordinary guy that you wouldn't you went look at him and go, oh, that's God in the flesh. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering. Listen to this and familiar with pain. I think that's why Jesus is a good pastor. I think that's why Jesus is a good shepherd. And a pastor that has never been broken and has never walked through pain won't be of much value to a church because everybody has suffered. And if you haven't yet, you will suffer before you die. And Jesus can identify with those folks. He goes on to say, like one from whom people hid their face, Jesus was despised. Not only was he forgettable, he was made fun of, and, he was, and we held him in low self esteem, in low esteem. In other words, to most people, Jesus was a joke. And that's why your friends aren't here, because Jesus is a joke. He's a religious it, it could be. It's just a religious fairy tale fairy tale. Religion is good to keep people in line, to have some sort of ethical bent towards them. But, but really, a homeless dude who rose from the dead, come on, you got a PhD.. You're making six figures. People call you sir or ma'am. You're a big deal at the office. You really believe this? Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time in our context and in the first century that Jesus was dismissed. But notice what Jesus says about himself in Mark nine thirty one: The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, we just sing a song, right? You split the seas wide open or something like that so I could walk through them. That's a reference to the Israelites leaving Pharaoh, heading to Canaan, heading to freedom, right? And God preparing a way. So when Jesus says the son of man is going to be delivered he's he's using that old testament language now to you that might not mean anything but if you were jewish in the first century and your ancestors got whipped to death because they wouldn't build pyramids uh, fast enough and strong enough for pharaoh that would mean something to you because like your whole ancestry suffered like your family has they've only known suffering and and if we just look at it as is, we might think, oh, this is a reference to Judas who portrayed Jesus. It's not. It's not. J- Judas didn't hand Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. Like, what are you talking about? Like, where'd you go to Bible college? Yes, he did, but there's a greater story happening. The father handed Jesus over. His own dad. In Isaiah 53 10. The writer says, it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause Jesus to suffer. That sounds like a terrible father. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering, offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, wait a minute. Something's changing. After Jesus has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous, by his knowledge, my righteous servant, talking about Jesus, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, fancy word for sin. If Jesus does not go to the cross, and if Jesus does not suffer, you are dead in your sins. And see, we still buy into, whether you are new here or been a Jesus follower all your whole life, we still buy into this morality argument, right? Like, man, I feel bad, I haven't been to church in three months, Right? I mean, I got to go because God's going to strike me down or whatever. We play this morality game all the time, and we easily slip into the bed of legalism, don't we? How much more would we sleep with legalism if Jesus doesn't go to the cross? Well, it would be more than a one-night affair. It would be a relationship because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we will spend our days justifying our existence the way you do at work the way that you do in your family and in your parenting and on the ball field and with your friends at school, which is why Jesus serves the soul. That's primarily why he came. Before you put him on a T-shirt and says, Jesus is my homie or Jesus would vote this way or Jesus is about this or Jesus is about that, do not speak for Jesus, my friends. Let him speak for himself. And the first thing that he did was he came to serve the soul. And because Jesus goes to the cross, Scripture's very clear. We've been justified by his sacrifice for us. So we can give up the morality game. We can give up running around trying to be a good moral person, whatever that means, because we've been declared righteous. See, anybody in this world can be good without being a Christian or religious. But you can only be declared righteous by someone that was righteous before you. Righteousness is an ethic that is given to you, not something that you can achieve on your own. And righteousness is given to us because Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. And he says, if you wanna follow me, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll give you my perfect moral standing in front of the Father, so you don't have to freak out You can relax. You can even, like, I don't know, enjoy life. You can know where you're going if that's important to you. And you'll be with my Father, and you'll be with me, and you'll be with the Holy Spirit. See, the first thing that Jesus came to do was to serve our soul. Secondly, the way of serving invites me to move positions. I love this. I love this part of the story. Because, like, you got to know that the Bible, like, if the Bible's true, if you're in that camp where you're trying to figure it out, Like, why would they put this stuff in there if it wasn't? Uh, Jesus gives this beautiful sermon, right? I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And what do the disciples do? The text says, they came to Capernaum, the north part of that map I showed you. When he was in the house, Jesus asked him, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. In other words, they felt guilty. They kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest, so Jesus gives this beautiful sermon. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to have a hard life. I'm going to suffer. And the disciples are like, "Whoa, wait a minute! You're going to die? Well, who's going to carry on the kingdom? Can I have your seat, Jesus?" Have <laughs> you ever been in a life group or a small group? We call them life groups here. And the leader like is asking this heartfelt question. And they shared their life, and then when they ask the question, someone's like, "Do we have more cookies?" You're like, "What do you? What do you?" You're missing the point here, okay? And no, you'll get diabetes when I eat more cookies. That's the same same thing with the disciples, right? They're not holier than you or more perfect. They're just human, like you. They are listening to God talk about his impending death, and they say, hey, can I have your seat when you die? And Jesus says, okay, we'll go there. Sitting down, which is normal for Jewish rabbis, which you should do that if you're a teacher, you sit down and make your students stand. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant of all. What? If I want Jesus to see, I've got to be a, like, I've got to, like, I have to serve people? You see, the invitation to move position is an invitation to move from the front of the line to the back of the line, and we don't like living from the back of the line, do we? I mean, nothing agitate, and this is totally first world problems. Okay, I feel guilty for saying this, even after coming back from Kenya a few months ago. There's nothing worse, right, in the in the world when you're when you're going to Dunkin' or your coffee spot, and there's you know you're seven people deep. There's seven people in front of you. And uh, all I want is a venti skinny caramel macchiato. I realize it just gave my man card up. But there's somebody, seven people ahead of you that can't for the life of them speak the Starbucks language. And you're like, just order the coffee, right? We don't like the back of the line because we have to wait. We have to depend on people in front of us to know, like, hopefully they know what they're doing. It's hard to lead people when you're at the front of the line, right? Because you don't see... <laughs> You don't see anybody in front of you. All, all the pastoring that needs, to help, uh, that needs to happen, all the shepherding that needs to happen, the next steps that people need to take in the church, the, 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 uh, the baptisms that need to happen, you don't see because your back is to them. And so Jesus invites us to live from the back of the line, to not be the greatest you know, leader, so to speak, where we dominate people like the Roman Empire, but we're a leader in the way that we serve people. If people are categories, like if this is how you view people, if people are categories to be managed, you're not going to move positions. You're going to stay at the front of the line. And, and, and it's easy, right? When people call you sir and ma'am and you know, they, they answer to you. It, it, like, the, like for a business leader, I would imagine this sermon would be really difficult to listen to. If people are projects to fix instead of people to love, you won't move. You'll stay at the front of the line. And you'll be a Christian your whole life, you'll die, you'll you'll go to heaven, sure. But man, you're going to you're going to miss out on so much. If people need convincing more than they need a friend, you won't move. You see, I wonder with the folks that I've had conversations with over the year that I've been here, And in those coffee meetings, they're testing out the lifeboat theory that that if I come to your church, are people going to actually love me or dismiss me? Is your church going to be a church where they may say God loves me, but the way in which they live, they live at the front of the line. So if you're not like them, if you don't make their kind of money, if you can't do the things that they enjoy in their circle of influence, then you're sort of dismissed. And Jesus says, hey, everyone, Everyone who comes through our doors gets a shot of following me. Let me wrestle with them. Don't worry about, you know, the black and white stuff, but let them know that there's a seat here and let me wrestle that tension out of them because I created them. I know what's good for them. Lastly, the way of serving invites us to shift my or our purpose. So here's the last radical thing about Jesus' kingdom that he does. It's different than any other kingdom. He says this, He took a little child, or Mark says this, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Now, in the first century, (laughs) kids were on equal playing fields as um, housemates or, or house servants. They were sort of low on the social totem pole. They, they, they were to be tolerated and not engaged with. Uh, and so the fact that Jesus would say, this little child belongs to the kingdom w- was different. Now, you, you take that and, and you just heard grown men arguing who deserves a seat, we do this even today in the boardroom, right? Who deserves the the raise and all that stuff. And so you can imagine the shock uh, that these men would have would have heard when Jesus says, "Hey, th- that kid over there that's playing that's really loud and I'm trying to teach and you're you're distracted." Yeah, that kid gets in. They're allowed to be part of my kingdom. And so what Jesus isn't saying is Jesus isn't inviting us to be childish. He's inviting us to be childlike. And there's a big difference. You see I'm going to use the word immature because you need words to communicate obviously but I don't mean immature in the way that we typically think about it. If your faith is an immature faith, you're going to have a difficult time talking about Jesus to your coworkers and to your friends. I'm not saying you're relationally immature that but what I am saying is folks that are immature in their faith haven't really settled in trusting Jesus, right? I don't know if that That makes sense. There's still some hangups that they have, and and that's part of the process. That's part of the process. But Jesus isn't saying to be childish or to be immature when we're in relationship with other people. Jesus isn't saying like, you know, when someone says, "Hey, do you go to that church in Salem?" Ah, yeah. It's just like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) But you know what I mean? You You smell what I'm stepping in. But Jesus is saying to be childlike. Well, what are kids like? They're curious. I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble when I was a kid for asking why a million times. What? Why is, you know, why is this? Dinosaurs, what, why does the sun come up and go down? Why are people this way? And there's awesome questions, right? Moms and dads are in the grocery store that they ask you about other people as they literally walk by your cart, right? And you're like, why, why are you asking this right now? And, and kids, <clears throat> they're so excitable, right? Like, If your child's, and why wouldn't it, why wouldn't it be this? Your child's favorite fast food restaurant is Chick fil A, right? And you say, hey, we're going to go get some Chick fil A and Methuen, not today because they're closed on Sundays, but on, on Monday, and your kid lights up. Jesus says, be like that in your relationships. Like, it's not about convincing somebody. If you don't move from category one to category two, then I'm walking away. Jesus says, "No, serving other people in our relationships is more like being a kid, asking good questions, being curious, taking a genuine interest in the relationship and in the conversation, and being sincere, but being sincere, uh, sincerely. Uh, words are hard. Excitable." when your coworker or your neighbor or your friend or your loved one receives some really good news. And Jesus says, serve people that way. Don't be immature and childish about your faith. And if you are, that's, it's part of the process, but be childlike about your faith and about your conversations. Take a genuine interest in other people. The way of Jesus is this is a whole other sermon, but it's the way of humility. Another Jesus follower who wrote a third of the New Testament, Paul, said it this way in one of his letters, In your relationships with one another. Okay, pause. Let me tell you how to do relationships. This is what Paul says. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, well, how did Jesus do relationships? Well, Jesus was God. In the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So even though Jesus was God, he didn't say, I'm God, I'm going to live at the front of the line, everyone fall in place, I'll strike you dead. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. God was a kid. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. You see, the way to the kingdom and the way to let our friends know that there's a seat at the table for them is that we serve them. We know that Jesus primarily came before any other reason that you see on social media and it's only going to get crazier, Uh, but Jesus came primarily to serve the soul of your friend, to die on a cross and to rise again three days later. And that should change our position, right? That should change our position from wanting to live at the front of the line to the back of the line. And thirdly, it should change our perspective that everybody gets a chance to follow Jesus, no matter where you are, what you look like, how you behave or how you vote or what you believe. Everybody gets a shot at following Jesus, And man, thankfully, every Sunday at RCC, we're going to do this in just a moment. We're going to celebrate communion. And where would we be if Jesus didn't make a way? Where would we be if Jesus wanted a happy, rich, plush life? We would be dead in our sins, and we wouldn't celebrate communion because we would be, as Darwin says, survival of the fittest, throwing people over the lifeboat to justify our existence. But because Jesus goes to the cross, we don't have to do that. We don't have to play the morality game. You're better than me. Great, that's fine. That's fine. Because my life is not justified by who I am, but what Christ has done for me. And just what you think about as we head into the, the, the school year. Who isn't here yet that needs to know that they're invited in, that they can explore Jesus, they can ask their questions, and they can doubt, and they can be in their pain, but they could be at a place that wants to walk alongside them. I'm going to pray, and we're going to take communion together. Uh, after I pray, we've got four stations set up, and as you're ready and if you're comfortable, uh, we encourage you to get out of your seat and partake in communion when you're ready. Lord, we thank you for um, your your ethics of the kingdom, which is to practice hospitality, to be a servant to everybody, uh, and r- really, it's it's just men and women that are willing to serve our friends in conversation to not be childish and immature in our faith, but to be childlike, to ask questions, to be filled with wonder, to be for people, even if they're not for themselves and even if they don't think God is for them. And so we thank you for this this provision, this meal of communion, that Isaiah and Mark were telling the truth, that you came to suffer for us And we thank you for this meal that's open to all Jesus followers. May may we step into this week what it looks like to suffer for our friends and to have conversations with our friends to know that there's a God that came to serve their soul. It's in your name that we pray, amen.